Well, hey, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name's John. I serve as pastor here at the Springs, and we are so glad that you're here. I'm sorry I missed you guys last week, but I'm grateful my buddy Garrison, he had the chance to come and engage with you guys. I was recovering from stuff. If you hear it a little bit in my voice today, we're going to push past it. It'll be fine. Don't worry. I'm not contagious, and I've been cleared by the doctor, and I'm fully on antibiotics, so I should be good to go. All that to say is, hey, so excited to be with you guys today. If you don't know this, we're doing something new. We're actually kicking off a new series. If you've been hanging out with the Springs for some time, here's what we do. We typically will take a book of the Bible, we'll start at one page, and then turn right until that book, that letter, ends. That's generally what we do. We jump around every now and then. The book we're jumping into today that I'm really excited for is the book of James. If you don't know the book of James, here's where really I'm I'm looking forward to 2019, what God does with it. It's practical, it's very wisdom-based, and it's just plain helpful. If you don't know this about the book of James, it's actually written by the half-brother of Jesus, the half-brother. So before we really begin to work our way through it, what I want to do with our time today is actually talk through what would it have been like to be Jesus's little brother? Any of y'all got older siblings? I got an older sibling. I have an older sister. She's three and a half years older than me. So generally, when she started high school, I started middle school. When she, she was in her senior year, I was in my freshman year. There was one year overlap. She went to college. When she was a senior in college, I was a freshman in college. Her name's Anne. I love her. We're close. We have a great relationship. One of the things that was true of me growing up, because Anne and I, our, our family, obviously, I went to the same school as she did. So here's what that meant. I had the same teachers that she did. And then it was a smaller school. So really even ended up coming almost some of the same friends. And I, in my wisdom, even though my entire time through middle school, and I'll explain a little bit more, and my entire time through high school, I really lived in the shadow of my big sister. And I mean that in a good way. She was great. But I I was always, oh, you're Anne's little brother, not John. You're Anne's little brother. I, in my infinite wisdom, I said, hey, let's double down. Let's do this. Let's go to the same college together. So chose the same college. The same thing continued. Because for me, I knew, here's what it's like to be Anne's little brother. In the classroom setting, teachers, middle school to high school, my sister, great gal, very academically minded. She's smart. Teachers loved her. They loved her. Teachers, like, liked me, you know? They weren't opposed to me. They didn't dislike me, but they came up and it was one of those, oh, you're Anne's little brother? And then by the end of the year, you're like, yeah, you're Anne's little brother, right? There was this drift. It's so much so she had a Spanish teacher that loved her. She'd taken Spanish for years. This guy, they became a friend, celebrated her at graduation. And then I'm there, it's like, oh man, I'm gonna take Spanish. You loved my sister. You're gonna love me. We started out great. By the end of my senior year, my, my teacher had a tantrum. I may have caused it. He had a tantrum, and he literally told me to go hang myself from a tree outside the classroom window. It escalated really quick. It all worked out fine. They loved Anne, liked me, right? And it was one of those, I can even remember sports. It's my freshman year. I've gone to high school, and I'm sitting there, and I'm playing soccer. I'm getting competitive. I made the varsity team. I was so excited. My sister, she's a senior, so all her friends are the varsity soccer players, And the entire time, I'm just trying to be one of the guys. I was always called Anne's little brother. Whole time. So much so we go to college, and I can remember I show up in college, went to a place there in Atlanta. My sister, she'd been there three years, been involved in different campus activities, organizations, classes. She's gotten to know people. She's got one of these personalities where she's just so fun to be around. Everybody loves her. And I can remember going out, It was a Thursday. Uh, Yeah, it was like that. We still keep in touch, my sister and I, right? But it was one of those where we're going and we're hanging out. It's a Thursday night. I'm new to college. I wasn't walking with Jesus then. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I'm going out. I'm a big deal. I'm in college. So me and some friends, we ended up going to this bar meets awkward club meets hookah lounge. Anybody know what I'm talking about when I say hookah? That's right. None of y'all are going to admit it right? I go to this like hookah lounge thing, right? And I'm just hanging out and it's good. And I can remember going there and showing up and it's a Thursday. And I can remember seeing this gal, this nice gal that I wanted to initiate a conversation with. I'm with friends. I didn't know who she was, but I knew, hey, she's older, right? 
And so I can remember finally working up, telling my buddies, okay, I'm going to go talk to her. I go and I start talking to her. I come to find out, I'm using things like, well, hey, what are you studying? And hey, no, I'm new. Here's what I'm thinking about doing, making up a bunch of stuff where I'll probably do business school, trying to act like I'll make a ton of money, all that kind of stuff, trying to impress this gal. And I can remember talking with her and she starts to ask some questions. And I can remember learning, oh, oh, you're in a sorority. My sister was in a sorority. The campus wasn't that big. And then I can remember her saying, A.D. Pi. That's the one my sister was in. And my sister, she was a leader in it. And I can immediately remember thinking in this moment, oh, dear God, not again. <laughs> right? Because here's why. Because immediately I know what's coming. What's coming is, oh, I'm going to go from the guy you're talking at at the weird kind of club bar hookah lounge that maybe you're mildly interested in, all the way to Anne's little brother. I see that moment coming. Well, she starts sharing that, and then we're still talking, just having good conversation. She's asking questions like, well, hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm, I'm from Georgia, right? <laughs> just trying to be vague. And she's like, well, where in Georgia? I'm like, it's a town called Woodstock. And she just peeks up, because immediately, I'm trying to give non-specific answers, guys. She peeks up, she's like, oh, I have a friend from Woodstock. <laughs> and immediately, I'm like, oh my gosh. And then she, she's like, what's, what's your last name? And I'm just sitting here, and I'm like, Umquist? Like, um, Umquist? <gasps> and you see her light up, and immediately, guess what I heard? <gasps> You're Anne's little brother. <laughs> like, the tone of voice changed, and all of a sudden, I'm like the cute baby brother, and she's like, oh, that's so sweet. Oh, oh. Here's what I'm telling you. I, <laughs> I love my sister, and I know what it is like to be a little brother in the shadow of someone, hey, admired, loved, all that. But what that was like in walking through that. Here's the reason I start with that. Yeah, I knew that and it's comedic. And now Anne and I, me and my sister, we have a great relationship now. She's Anne, I'm John. But imagine with me just for a moment, imagine with me, especially if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what it would have been like to have Jesus as your big brother. What it would have been like, especially because scholars say very likely in birth order, Right? He, he's your half-brother because conceived of a virgin, but your big brother, you're next in line in his shoes to fill. Like you can imagine like having a bad day and Mary's hanging out with him and looks at James and says, hey, James, I got to help you out here, buddy. You missed it there. And her counsel is, is James like, well, what should I have done? She just looks at him and says, like, I would have been more like Jesus if I were you. <laughs> seriously, seriously. Imagine later in life, James like goes to a bar mitzvah or a party or something like that, right? He shows up and all of a sudden people are like, oh, you're Jesus's brother. So they want to ask him all about Jesus, all that kind of stuff. And then one guy, you know, there's one guy, probably a little drunk, right? He walks up and he's like, yo, your brother last time he was here, we got a lot of wine. What can you do for me? Right? So he's this whole life living in the shadow of an older brother. What would that have been like? How difficult would that have been? What type of pressure would have been in him and on me? Here's the reason I think this matters so much, especially if you're here and, and you believe the same thing James came to believe. James, for much of his life, for arguably more than half of it, did not recognize his big brother as a savior of the world. He didn't believe that to be true. So what happened to him? What so changed in him to where he was never the same again? And if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus, that same thing has happened to you. Now, if you're here and you're wrestling through faith or you're, you're, you're back because it's a new year and you're like, hey, I, I'm not saying I'm committed to Jesus. I'm not saying I believe in religion. But what I am gonna do is I'm just gonna come and hang out for a little bit. Here's what I would tell you, right? I had an older sister. I was yeah, I mean, I was a good little brother, but I was gifted at, if Anne was stepping out of line, I was going to let people know, <laughs> right? Like I can remember I had to do way more chores than her at one time. And I literally had this parental intervention where I like gave this presentation. I have to do this. 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 She does nothing. All of a sudden, Anne is taking out the trash every Sunday night and I loved it, right? Here's the reason I share that though. Imagine being the younger brother of the Messiah, of the Savior. No younger brother likes to admit my big brother's awesome. 
My big brother is the man. No, he would have ratted that out. He would, he would have absolutely told the people the truth. And here's what I'm going to tell you. For really the first part of his life, he did. And then something changed. So the fact we're going to read a letter from the baby brother of Jesus Christ himself, what I'm telling you is, it is an apologetic for the Christian faith. The baby brother would say, my big brother is not just a good big brother. He's the Savior. This message is worth considering. The way I want to do that is today, we're actually just going to look at one verse. It's James 1.1, but really, we're not going to spend a lot of time there. We're going to jump around to a bunch of different places throughout Scripture, because here's what we're going to try to do. We're going to try to piece through. How did James change? What led to the change in James? What did that mean for him, and what does that mean for us? We're going to talk about it in kind of three different aspects of James's life. The first we're going to look at is James, the disapprover of Jesus. The next one we'll see is James, the servant of Jesus. How did he go from disapprover to servant? And then the third, which is really why we're setting up this whole book, why why we're going to spend the next, I'm guessing, three to four months talking through it, is James, the example of Jesus. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to James 1.1. We're going to jump around to a lot of different passages, but they'll be up here on the screen. Is again, we try to piecemeal together. Hey, what was their relationship like? Was that healthy? When they showed up for likely what Passover would have been like us coming together for like a Christmas, a family reuniting get together. Like when Jesus walked in through the door, was it like, oh, big bro, I've missed you, this solid hug? Nope. It was, as you might say, in the words of the philosopher Oh, man, I'm blanking on her name now. Bad Blood? Who sang that? Taylor Swift, thank you. There was some bad blood. Was that there on behalf of Jesus? Nah, he came to die for his little brother. But was it one of those moments where they had things to work through? Yes. To set up the book, it's written by, again, the half-brother of Jesus. He wrote this likely somewhere between 44 AD, so depending on how you view it, likely 10 years after the death of Jesus Christ. He wrote it from 44 to 49. He's writing it in response to the church was growing in Jerusalem. That's where it was established. If we had more time, we'd read all this section. You can go check it out. It's Acts 12. Persecution really comes in under a king by the name of Herod. And all of a sudden, these believing Jews scatter. They scatter. And James stays behind faithfully lead this church. James is writing this letter to those believing Jews, those who would have been culturally and ethnically Jewish, practiced in every way to the best of their ability, a fulfillment of the old law, yet knew that in Christ you were only saved by grace through faith, the establishment of something new. That's who he's writing this to. The book itself, James, if you hung out with him, he would have been a very pragmatic and practical guy. A lot of people, they call us, it's like wisdom literature. They reference things like the book of, uh, of Proverbs. They say references to things like Sermon on the Mount, which is three chapters out of the book of Matthew. I share that because as we read this, you'll see James, he really gives a strong, pragmatic exhortation to living. What he calls you to and he calls me to. And what we get to see today is how did he go from denying, disapproving, disbelieving to never being the same again in a way that changed him. And he so wrote this letter to an audience saying, this faith changes you. That's what we're going to talk about. So the first thing I want to talk through first today is James, the disapprover of Jesus. James, the disapprover of Jesus. To to remind you of what I've, a little bit of what I've already shared, they were half brothers. Mary conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Husband, Joseph, later on, James would have been a son of Joseph and Mary. That means they grew up in the same house, right there in Nazareth. So whatever toys Jesus played with, whatever toys even looked like, the table that Jesus likely learned, you know how little kids, they'll go, and the way that they learn to walk is they'll kind of grab a table, kind of hold onto that, and then awkwardly like waddle around. They likely learned to awkwardly waddle around the same table. The same mom that when Jesus would fall, went to help pick him up. 
would pick up James. The same general friends that liked there in that section of the town and the village that Jesus knew James would have known. The other thing that happened, if you know kind of the rest of the story, even about Jesus' birth, is Jesus' birth was always something that people stigmatized. Pharisees, and you see this in a few different instances in the gospel, they would come and they would project on Jesus, hey, he's the child. He's a child that came from unfaithfulness, that Mary didn't conceive by the Spirit, but likely had an affair with another man while being betrothed to Joseph. And then they came and they got married together. That would have been something that obviously brought difficulty to Mary, something that brought difficulty to Jesus, even though Jesus knew the truth, even though Mary knew the truth. It would have been something that brought difficulty to James. Imagine James is nine years old and hanging out. Imagine. Now, I'm stepping outside of Scripture on this and just saying, imagine with me. He's nine years old and he's hanging out, and his older friends know of Jesus. And they come and they say, hey, what's the real story? Like, hey, man, it's just me. You can tell me the truth. What did what, your mom do? That was his big brother. That was his mom. At age 12, Jesus, he goes into the temple. That would have been like almost if we'd gathered here like this, a place of worship. He goes into the temple and he opens a scroll and he reads from an Old Testament book of the Bible called Isaiah. He reads from Isaiah and essentially Jesus at age 12 goes in and publicly declares, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. I am the Son of God. And I've come to save you from your sins. He does that at 12. Imagine how that would have changed James's life. The Bible doesn't say if Jesus talked about that at the dinner table before. We don't know. But we know, okay, that's when Jesus really begins to go public. Imagine how that would have changed his relationships, his friendships, where he would have gone to his big brother and been like, wait, no, seriously, what do you mean? No, 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 Jesus, are you sure? And Jesus would have sat there with an Old Testament, looked at him and said, yes, James, I am. He grew up in the shadow of Jesus. He grew up with a stigmatized birth narrative attached to Jesus. And he grew up with a big brother proclaiming to be the savior of the world. My older sister was great. I cannot imagine what life would have been like if she, with every ounce of her breath, proclaimed herself as the Messiah. And I grew up in that. One of the things we know that's true from our Bible, we see this in John 7, is James did not believe Jesus to be the savior of the world at this time. He didn't believe it. John 7, verse 5, for even his brothers, for not even his brothers, excuse me, believed in him. Though Jesus claims divinity, James denies it. He didn't trust it. You see in Mark 6, and this is verses 2 through 4. I'm just, I'm just going to read it because it explains much of it. And on the Sabbath, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him, they were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So these folks come, Jesus is preaching, he's teaching. Folks are like, wow, that's encouraging. And then they switch. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? All of a sudden, they begin to say, wait a minute, dude, that guy, that guy grew up down my block. Like, he went to the same elementary school as my kids. And are not his sisters even here with us? And they took offense at him. So the they that it's specifically speaking to is, again, likely this audience who starts in courage, transitions to, who is he to say this? But that they may also include the family. And here's the reason I think it does. Let's look at the next verse. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. And then he doubles down. And among his relatives. And then he doubles down. And in his own household. I don't think Jesus was surprised at the response of the crowd in this moment. Why? because Jesus had sat at the dinner table. He'd, he'd met with James. He'd heard the denial and the disapproval. He'd heard the moments where Jesus is coming and teaching things, and the brothers come and they say, okay, hey man, you want to teach that in the small town? Why don't you take that to the big city, bud? I bet you don't have the guts to take that to the big city. 
and they mock him. You really see a moment where this kind of crescendos in the life of Jesus. It's actually his crucifixion. Right? And again, we're just piecing in gaps, trying to fill in a story. Hey, what would that relationship would have been like? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, he goes, and, and, and for those of you who know the story, he ends up being put on the cross. And it's while he's on the cross, there's this amazing moment, and I've kind of wondered in the past, hey, why is that there? It's out of John 19. We're, we're not going to read this one, but it's verses 26 and 27 if you want to write it down. Where there's this moment where Jesus on the cross gives himself as an example of sacrificial love. Even though he's going through more pain, more torment, more excruciating separation in what's to come from the Father than anyone could ever understand. He says something to John, one of his disciples. He says, hey, John, I am entrusting my mom, Mary, to your care. And there's essentially this moment where Jesus transfers responsibility of his mom to his disciple, John. Here's why that moment mattered so much. You, you could teach out of that, and rightly so, hey, look, Jesus, even in his moment of greatest need, he's still thinking and caring for others. You could teach out of that moment, hey, Jesus, even in the moment of his greatest need, you know what he loved? He loved his mama. You could also teach out of that, hey, Jesus, in a moment of his greatest need, here's what he knew. Jewish tradition, Jewish tradition would have had it to where, because Mary at this time, likely Joseph, he's passed away. So Jesus is the primary caretaker. Where upon Jesus' death, it goes to the next eldest son, would have gone to James. Mary would have been entrusted to James. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying here, because at this point, James, he's likely back in Nazareth. Jesus, he's dying on a cross in Jerusalem. I don't think Jesus is saying this moment, hey, James won't physically provide or take care of her or let her live with him, none of that. But imagine the mother of Jesus watching her son die, knowing my son is the savior of the world. And as my son says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He speaks of me, speaks of Mary, speaks of James. He speaks of all of us. Like you don't see it explicitly from this text, but what I'm putting before it is part of the reason I think that happened is Jesus knew I can't send my grieving mom to the care of a brother who when she walks through the door, likely his tone, likely his attitude, because he's disbelieved, because there hasn't been honor in the household, because Jesus is already having to do this in the first place, would have been one of those of, yeah, he was crazy. Honestly, mom, he got what was coming to him. I'm sorry you're hurting, but I don't feel bad for him. Jesus wouldn't do that. Why? Because James the author of this beautiful, amazing, transformative letter at that season of life was the disapprover of Jesus. The disapprover. That brings us up to James 1, verse 1. If you got a Bible, you can read with me. It's short and it's sweet. James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So immediately you know there's a change because this James is all of a sudden saying, hey, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So something has changed in James. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, the dispersion there, think um, the 12 tribes, that's a reference to Jewish believing Christians that likely spread following Acts 12. So they scatter in response to persecution. James is writing this letter to those scattered greetings. The reason I start with that verse is here's the immediate question we have to ask. How did there go from being extreme tension in the relationship, the disapprover, the one that did not honor, the one where Jesus knew what it felt like to be ostracized even in his own household? How did they go from that to where James identifies himself as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, my big brother. Here's what happens, and your Bible begins to fill in some of the different pages for us. The first thing we see, it's actually, and we're going to keep jumping around here, it's actually out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
It's a whole section dedicated to the resurrection. And in part of it, you see this timeline of what Jesus does. You see Jesus dies three days later. He rises from the grave. That sets off 40 days of a timeline before he will ascend into heaven. After that, 50 days until the Holy Spirit will descend in Pentecost. And you begin to see this timeline forming. And you see right here, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 6 through 7, this brother that denied him, this brother that he didn't trust, this brother that he said, hey, I can't send mom to you. This brother that by every means didn't believe and likely would have shared, he got what was coming to him. Here's what Jesus did for him. This is talking about Jesus and his appearing following the resurrection. Then he, that's Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He's just talking about they don't die eternally. They just death and joining God in heaven. Then Jesus appeared to James. James gets a unique shout out. What happens? He goes to James. Then who does he go to? To all the apostles. And then you see right there in verse eight, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. The apostle Paul wrote most of your New Testament next to Jesus Christ. He's arguably the greatest missionary that ever lived. Jesus made sure his younger brother James saw him rise from the grave before he went to the apostles, before he went to Paul. Jesus had a heart of, hey, baby, bro. It was all true. Everything was true. I've come. So in a way that we don't know, here's what happened. James likely would have heard of, okay, he died. Okay, he's supposedly back from the grave. Right? I don't fully know what's going on. My mom has seen him. It's a little weird. It's a little confusing. People coming and asking him. And then in some way, Jesus came to his baby brother, the one that didn't believe the one that didn't honor him, the one he couldn't trust, his mom to the care of. And he showed him what would have been pierced hands and said it was all true. I've come to save the world from their sins. Brother, I don't ask that you work harder. I don't ask that you try and be more. I just ask that you believe. I died for everything wrong you've ever done. And I loved you as I did it for the joy set before me, James. And now, all I ask is that you believe. And there's this moment where baby brother realizes my big brother is the savior of the world. The kindest thing that's ever happened to him, the one who disapproved, shifts in his heart and he comes to realize, despite my disapproval, he approved of me. He died for me. And you see this beautiful shift into becoming a servant of the king, a servant of his big brother. Here's what I love about that moment. Anytime people come and they meet, right, by grace, through faith, the resurrected Jesus, they are never the same. They are never the same. Doesn't mean they don't still have problems. But it is true that everything changes. They become servants. Here's what happens. James, he meets Jesus in this moment. James continues on, because Jesus, he goes and he tells people, and this is Acts chapter one, verse 14. He sends people into Jerusalem. He says, hey, go wait. The Holy Spirit will descend. It's a moment of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit will descend. He sends these people into it. And James, having met Christ, goes. Acts chapter one, verse 14. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They're in the upper room together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Here's what I love. James, likely in conjunction with Mary, had gone and James had said, hey guys, I'm the eldest. I was wrong. Big bro is true. Come. And now the family comes. Here's what you then see in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit descends. Lives changed. And you see this divine institution of the church. Us. Begin to establish and the first one really taking place there from an upper room in beginning then inside of Jerusalem 
And who is added to it? Those who are being saved day by day. Here's what I love. James comes to know his big brother and then grows in a service to him. You can go on all throughout the book of Acts. In particular, you see it in three different sections. Chapter 12, 15, and 21. Two key ones, chapter 12 and 15. Everyone knows Peter, the apostle Peter, the one who went and he gave this beautiful first like speech where he called people to believe in Christ and turn from sin, Peter. They know Paul, Paul who took this message to the ends of the earth. Well, Peter and Paul, they'd take these trips where they'd go and they'd tell people about Jesus. They'd take these trips, but each time they'd come back through and they'd circle through Jerusalem. You know who they were coming to check in with? James. Baby bro of Jesus, he had become one of the founding elders, apostles, and shepherds of the first church. The one who disapproved now wanted to help the church devote. He wanted to get after it in every single way. You see it happen where Peter comes to him and he's reporting news and you see James as the narrative included. You see it happen in, in chapter 15 where there's this big deal of, hey, what does faith mean for Jews? What does faith mean for Gentiles? You know who's a swing vote? Nah, that's not fair to say. Swing vote is inaccurate. The language that's included in Acts 15 is you see James speaking up and saying, hey guys, this is what is true of God. James was a leader, shepherd, pastor, servant. I've always been interested in why James at the start, chapter one, verse one, he didn't introduce himself as the brother of Jesus. Right, that would have given you a sense of notoriety. Like you guys would be interested if Tony Romo was my big brother. That'd be kind of cool. Honestly, that'd be kind of cool. I love my big sister, but that would be kind of cool. Right, there'd be a sense of that where I could almost use, hey, maybe we've got the same last name. I can use that getting into restaurants. Like that would probably curry me favor with different folks because maybe through me they could get to Tony. Now, some of y'all are like, I can't stand Tony. Thank God Dak Prescott's here, right? And I've lost you on that. But what I mean by that is, why do you think James didn't say, hey, the half-brother of Jesus? Because I think James wanted to underline what mattered to him most. I'm a servant. Servant there, it's the Greek word doulos, bond servant. I'm the property of a good owner, a good master, a good king. My big brother, Jesus. You see, we go from disapprovers to servants because we're never the same after we meet the resurrected Jesus. I got, a, I got a good friend. He became a Christian five years ago. Five years ago. He came up to me recently and he shared a story with me. Right? He shared a story with me about how he was able to go and engage with some coworkers. If you weren't here with us a year ago, we did a series through Ephesians where we taught through Ephesians and we gave out this handout at the end of one of the times. And the handout simply said, in Christ, for those who believe in Jesus, here's what is true of you. You are loved, cherished, beloved, dearly sought, an heir, prized by God. These identity statements. And we gave out all these handouts. I can remember after the service, we like didn't have enough. Not everybody got some. We kind of ran out. Well, he came up to me not too long ago and he told me, yeah, man, I actually, I took a stack of those. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, well, that's where they went. He took a stack of those. And my friend who trusted Christ five years ago, he went and he went to all of his colleagues. He went to his coworkers, to his bosses, to those he worked alongside, to those who worked before him. And he went around and he handed them out. And he handed them out to people saying, hey, I just wanted you to have this so you could know. For those who believe in Jesus, here's what's true of them. And here's what may be true of you. And he went and he gave them to every single person. Here's what you don't know about that guy. Five years ago, when Jesus got a hold of his heart, before that, he had two failed marriages. He was on his way to a third. Infidelity had marked him his whole life. He'd suffered the pain of abuse, and that showed up in terrible tendencies. He was far more concerned with self than he was ever concerned with others. He was a nuisance to his family, a hindrance to himself, and by his actions, offensive to God. And what happened? He met the resurrected Jesus. 
The disapprover, the denier, the disbeliever became the servant, the son, the one identified by, I'm loved, I'm cherished, I'm prized, I'm new, I am sought after, I am God's beloved. He made me a part of his family. And he switched. He was never the same again. That same thing happened to James. That same thing has happened to those who believe. I pray that same thing happens more and more. I want to talk about the last theme of James's life. As we've examined, hey, he was a disapprover, to then he was a servant. The last theme as we continue building, how was James never the same? How did he change? And the third phase was James, the example of Jesus. James, the example of Jesus. Historians, they kind of write a lot about James. There's two in particular. One was named Josephus. The other was named Eusebius, right? Two famous historians trusted by secular, Christian, everybody. James had a reputation about him. His reputation preceded him in really three ways. The first was he was zealous for holiness. You'll see it here in this book. You'll see it all throughout. What James takes seriously is how faith transforms you and I. How faith, if it doesn't show itself, is confusing and potentially dead. How faith is meant to go to work. So though he denied Jesus before his death, in the rest of his life, James, he was zealous for the things of God. That's the first thing scholars really see. The second, man, it was his prayer life. This is probably one of the greatest compliments I've heard historians pay somebody. They said his knees were like the knees of a camel. Anybody here ever ridden a camel? Yeah, me neither. But saw it on Discovery Channel, okay? Saw it on Discovery Channel. Their knees are obviously calloused. Why? Because they have to lay down, hot sands, all those things. Knees are extremely calloused. James, his nickname was Camel Knees. It's because he would spend so much time in prayer. Imagine that. You and I, as we go to pray, we can pray to our brother, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ brought us into the family. But imagine the moment where, where James, he's kneeling, he's in Jerusalem, he's there with the established church, the growing church, and he kneels. And he's saying, we're all his brother. But big brother, you are good and you are true. Camel knees was reputation. And then the third is he was about what he preached. He was about what he was preaching. Again, you see it in part of the reason the persecution came and then the church kind of begins to scatter in Acts 12. Right? If you don't know the timeline of the church, chapters before Stephen, this big-time church leader, he'd been publicly killed. Peter, at this point, had just been thrown into prison, come out of prison, and people were getting scared. And as they ran, and I'm not saying it was wrong for some of them to run, but as they ran, James stayed. He cared for the folks. He endured persecution. He knew hard days. So as he calls us to this book, the, the really the tagline of the book that we're calling it is the worthy work. The worthy work. We're calling it that because that is a beautiful summary of the life of James, how because of Christ, he was made worthy. And how because he was made worthy, he went to work. It's this play on words where it's both a statement of identity in who we are as Christians, as well as a resounding call to action. When you meet the resurrected Jesus Christ, you are never the same. Some of the things that James is going to teach us on, and we should trust him. We should trust him. He's going to teach us on the purpose of trials. First thing we'll talk about straight out of the gate is he's going to tell you and me to have joy in the midst of pain. Come ready. He's going to talk about the source of our temptations. He's then going to set up this whole theme of, hey, what does real faith, what does saving, genuine, God-fearing, Jesus-trusting faith really look like? He's going to say faith, it obeys the word. It removes favoritism and discrimination. It evidences itself through works. It controls its tongue. It brings about wisdom. It creates 
sincere humility. It leads to dependence on God alone. And then it's gift. It endures awaiting the return of Christ. James is going to talk about how, hey, my big brother, he's coming back. Hold fast. It prays for those in need, for the afflicted, for those in sin, in bondage, and in pain. And then he ends it with this. Faithfulness loves people enough that when they are not actively striving towards it, yet they claim to be about it. Faithfulness looks like confronting that person in their error. Here's what I mean. For many years of my life, I claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I wasn't. I used that name. I dragged it through the mud. I was confused yet well-intended. If James had hung out with me, he would have been kind. He would have been gracious. But after a cup of coffee, I would have known, hey, man, you are at best confused, at worst deceived. Repent. And repentance being a word that doesn't have to carry the negative connotation where people think, oh man, the pastor, he said repent. This is where the Bible thumping begins and he brings it out. No, repent would have come as a younger brother talking to a big brother. No, you can trust him. He's good. I denied him for years. He, in kindness, he came to me before he even went to the talks that the, the folks that trusted him, that were following him. He came to me. I bet James sat there and he could think through all the past. Again, I use Passover as an example. The, the, the Passover dinners where he sat at the table with Jesus. And there was the awkward tone of, come on, Jesus. Stop with the Messiah talk, man. And now James, he would be in Jerusalem as a shepherd, as an elder, as a pastor, as an apostle. And he would sit at kitchen tables. And he would say, my big brother's true. You can believe in him. You don't have to work. You don't have to fear real death. You just have to believe in him. It's the greatest life you can ever have. He was an example of Jesus. He was an example of faith. What happens when you meet the resurrected king, when you come to believe, okay, I trust you. You died for me. I believe it. You rose from the grave to prove it's true. You're coming back. I'm all in. You're never the same. Doesn't mean you have it all together. No, I don't. But it does mean you and I commit to the worthy work, the imperfect, but the prevailing, the progressive, the committed, the joyful, the passionate pursuit of the worthy Work And when we fall down, we allow others to come and help us back up to build into us. Why? Because it's true that baby brother despised, disapproved, denied, disbelieved in big brother. And yet big brother still came. In the same way in my life, I denied. I disbelieved. I dishonored. And yet in kindness... He said, hey, John, I want to make you a part of my family. I want to make you my baby brother. That's what he did for me. It's what he does for all believers. And that is what he wants to do for you. You're never the same. This is one of those James, as you think about his life, and we'll end with this, as you think about his life, he followed through to this. It was one of those, his life, and everything I'm telling you now, I, I don't know from this, so I'm stepping outside. I'm trusting those two historians, that secular historians, they trust those guys. And it's about James's death. You see, James, he'd lived this life, we're arguing about this point, he was in his young 60s. Young 60s, maybe late 50s. He was still an elder, still a pastor, still a shepherd of that church in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, he found out news he found out news that the Jewish high priest had condemned him to death. The brother who had denied Jesus in his life and now seeking to live for Christ following his death was charged by the high priest, deny your big brother or die. 
the phrase that was said is, is he was demanded that he should renounce faith of Christ before all people. The high priest, he wanted it to be public. He wanted it to be for folks. Why? Because James, as Paul describes him in the book of Galatians, he was a pillar of the church. He was an apostle. They come and they take James up on top of the temple. Imagine the temple would have been a place of worship. The only place to go was the foundation of the system of atonement throughout your Old Testament, a big deal. They take him to the temple. They take him all the way up on top. It would have been 150 feet high. They take him to the edge. And high priest says, denounce. James, here's what it said that James said. Man, I want to live like this. James declared himself fully before the multitude. James welcomed the crowd. Why? He had another chance to preach. He had another chance to tell the world about his big brother. James declared himself before the multitude. He confessed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, our Savior and Lord, the one who denied him before his death, who came to believe of him in his life, in his last moments, stood there and preached. He's true. I was never the same again after I realized he is true. The high priest took James. They threw him off the temple. It was 150 feet fall. James survived the fall. 150 feet, you can look it up. This past week, I did some research. I found multiple examples. There was one that stood out. There was a rock climber that fell 300 feet. No harness, no belay system, no nothing. He fell 300 feet straight onto rock. And he lived 150 feet fall, trusting in big brother Jesus lays there, undoubtedly broken, undoubtedly. And they have to come. He's been condemned. Specifically, they were going to stone him. And they come to stone James to death. The historian, he even makes this note, almost as an aside, there was one guy in such rage, he ended up taking a club of his. It was a club that he used to beat his dirty clothes clean. And between the stones and that man's laundry club, they killed James. There's this amazing moment, though, even in the story of the historian, where James, is he then, he's fallen, he's laying on the ground. He shares this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know how James would have found that language? If, if you know that, it's because that's what Jesus said on the cross. You know how James would have first heard that language? Maybe his big brother told him when he met with him. Maybe that's what he shared with him. Hey, I forgive you. You know not what you do. But it likely would have come, pro probably after James had believed and he'd first reunited with his mom, Mary. Mary was the only physical descendant, excuse me, the physical relative of Jesus at the point of his crucifixion. And in them re reuniting, and James saying, hey, I met big brother. I see now, I believe. She would have shared with him. You know what he said from the cross? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. James knew he had been forgiven. James knew what it was like to disapprove, to disbelieve, to deny, to not walk in a faithfulness to Christ. And yet he had been forgiven. He had met the risen Lord. What does faith like that do? That faith leaves you never the same. Never the same. And that's how James died. The once disapprover the then servant and the forever example, James. He'd come to realize big brother was true. And he knew if this is true, everything changes. I am never the same. That's the author of the letter we're gonna read. That's the faithfulness of the pillar of the man. So as we go and we teach this text, as we walk through this, here's what you need to remember. James was just like me. I was once a disapprover, denier. You were 
to, regardless of whatever age you came to trust in Jesus Christ. And there are days of my life where my actions, I still disapprove, I still deny, and yet I strive by the spirit that resided in James, that resides in me, to live as a servant, to be an example. James knew that, James lived that, and he was never the same. Let me pray that that would be true of us, and we'll get out of here. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you don't leave us blind till we can come. And even when it comes to your household, your family, and the difficulty, we have insight into it. We have a picture of what that is like. I thank you for the truth. Lord, I thank you for the book of James, how you went and you sought your baby brother, how your spirit changed him and how you then went to write this and to then exhort us in the same way. He went to encourage and strengthen the first century church. Lord, I pray that folks know that real faith in you brings change. The worthy are made by faith in you and the worthy are then made to work. I thank you for the truth that I don't have to work my way to you. I don't have to be a better version of me. You have made me enough. You have made me perfect. But I thank you that just like James, your younger brother, I had the chance to excel still more that we do. May we be a people who are never the same because we've met you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, guys, hey, thank you so much. I can't wait to keep journeying with you in 2019. For those of y'all that are new here, if you want to come to a newcomer's class, we'll be in room A, would love to hang out. But really the question that matters most, if you're here and you're wrestling with faith, if you're back to church and you don't know what to believe about God or how to trust in him, or you have questions about anything, don't leave here without turning to somebody and saying, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? If there's confusion in how they answer you, come find me. Would love to talk with you. Y'all go. Have a great week of worship.